Hello and welcome to the SAE Tomorrow Today podcast. I am your host, Grayson Brulte. Keep up with the twists, turns, and acceleration in the mobility industry between episodes with SAE's incredible SAE Smart Brief. Click the link in the show notes to subscribe and receive the latest industry articles, updates, news, and announcements straight to your inbox. On today's episode, I sat down with Karandeep Bogle, Director of Engineering at Arrival, to discuss how his experience on a rowing team informed his collaborative work style, Arrival's human-centered approach to design, and the role microfactories have on the production and mobility projects. And away we go. Enjoy this episode. Welcome to the podcast, Deep. Hey, thanks for having me. This is really exciting. I loved Arrival for a long time because your design is just flat out sexy. And so I'm really excited to, to dive into this conversation. Deep, you have a love of rowing. What did you learn from rowing that you were able to transfer to business? I think if with any sort of like team sport, with rowing, it's just one of those super intense sports where you have to do everything in sync with your teammates. You're having to do everything as a team. You kind of, it's, it's more than just sort of competing as well and, and actually doing the sport. It's kind of like getting up early. It's making sure you're eating right. It's making sure you're staying fit. It's making sure you're not going out on the weekends when your other friends are. It's just that mentality of the grind, I think. And I think when with, with a sport as hard as rowing, when things are just going so, so hard, it kind of it kind of helps you with that mentality of like you just push through and the results will start to come. And I think that kind of just carrying across that sort of mentality of getting through the grind, getting through those difficult moments, um, it definitely helps, especially when you're sort of trying to build a startup. You're, you're building a startup with a rival. It's a, it's a big grind to completely engineer an electric vehicle from the ground up. Is that perseverance that you learn from that team sport of this is a team effort, every man must do optimize to build this vehicle? Absolutely, yeah. And I think, you know, we're, we're, we're pretty autonomous in the way that we work. And we, Dennis, is, he's, he's pretty unique, our, our CEO and founder. He tries to sort of always talk, you know, he asks the leadership to like, how, how do we create an environment where we can um, enable people to achieve their missions? And I think that's a really powerful statement because it's almost like, you know, it's, it's trying to just s- summarize what leadership is in just one statement. And I think when you, when you enable that autonomy and that kind of freedom, you have this kind of like chaotic moment, but then naturally things start to settle into a rhythm and then you suddenly start to, you know, operate as one and work as one team. And, it, and that's just through a natural process, not by some dictatorial sort of like direct um, sort of process, which I think is really interesting. It's very interesting. So you, you're working as a team, you understand rowing, but I got to point out, you grew up loving art and, and the arts. Mm-hmm. So you've got this incredible package of understanding art, understanding design, appreciating culture, understanding teamwork. How did you end up going down the engineering path? Because to me, it seems like you're perfectly meant for the strategy path. Yeah, it's it's a good question. It's something I've always, I think I've, I've battled with, with personally as well. And um, growing up, I've always wanted to, you know, whether it was GCSE or A-levels, wanted to do art, I wanted to do drama. But I think being a second generation Indian born to first generation parents in, in the UK. It's kind of one of those things where you're sort of told to maintain mathematics and, and, and physics and things like that. Just sort of, you know, just get, get, make sure you get your degree and then sort of see where it, where it takes you. And I think, yeah, I kind of, um, just through kind of like growing up and, and sort of, uh, let's call it light guidance from my parents, it just ended up taking the more um, engineering biased route. Um, but I think having that sort of I suppose, desire to, to stay close to the arts or, or just having that 
design, I suppose, um, that desire to get involved with sort of design projects, I think really helps, um, you know, because you can really appreciate when you have to work with sort of industrial designers or creative people in any sort of industry, as an engineer, you can then start to be the, the voice of reason and the person who like sort of realizes like, oh, wow, I, I can actually help that person, you know, deliver that thing. And I think it's having that appreciation of, of good looking, of, of great design, uh, good looking things as, and aesthetics, but then also being a person who can like bring that to, to sort of fruition, I think it, it, it's a great, it's a great combination. In other words, say you kind of act as the translator of the design team wants to do this, and then for the engineering reality says that you can do this, then you kind of, with your incredible background of art and design, say, okay, guys, this is this is how we can build this together. This is how we can build the best vehicle. Totally, yeah, and I think that's that's one of the more powerful roles. I think more often than not, um, engineering roles are sort of pushed into a corner where you know creatives or certain designers take the limelight, let's say, because it's the most visual and it's it's the most um, it's the first thing you notice, right, is the design of something and the way something looks. And I think that always gets attributed to sort of the creatives and, and designers who, you know, guide the, guide the aesthetics and, and design the object or the thing. But then it's the people, it's, it's the team around that that actually bring that to fruition and bring it to the world. I think it's, it's something to be really proud of. It's definitely something to be proud of. So you're right about, and I want to go down this route. You look at a product and say, oh, that's beautiful. That's a beautiful vehicle. That's a beautiful um, hard good. And well, does it work? Does it function properly? That's where engineering comes in. So you have this beautiful design, um, and you have an engineering product that's actually working. And what is that experience like when you you test drive one of these vehicles? You get in for the first time, and you look at this and say everything came together. What does that feel like? What is that experience like? Oh, uh, it's it's everything. And I think <laughs> more often than not, when you see one of your something that you've worked on for the first time, like manifest itself. It never goes in the way you have this like romantic view of just like yes you know what when we when we build this thing it's going to be awesome and it's going to be so cool but when it gets to it you just note you start to notice like all these things that are going wrong you're just like oh man i don't even want to continue building this thing because i know this is going down the the wrong sort of path but it's great to sort of see i think definitely when you see something for the first time it's awesome to see everyone's efforts just combined into one place like distilled into one thing that you can just see and touch and all that hard work i think it, it really pays off in that moment i also think it's 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 super important to it just helps to highlight you know all the assumptions you made throughout the whole process and all the all the conversations you had to have all the trade-offs you had to make it really helps you understand like at what point you know a decision was a good one or a, or, a, or a right a, a, a good decision or a bad decision um so yeah it's that's why it's everything it's an overwhelming feeling of, yep, we did it. And suddenly it dawns on you how much more you have to do beyond that and for the next version, the next version. And that's what makes you a great engineer because you're always trying to engineer a better product and improve the product. Yeah, I, I, I certainly hope so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> are there design elements in the vehicles that are reminiscent of something that you were exposed to growing up in the UK? Because the UK has an incredible culture. It's, it's, do you know what? The, the culture here, it's great. And I think it's definitely a real melting pot of just so many different types of backgrounds and experiences. And I think one thing that Arrival does really well is it brings together just such an array of different experiences and backgrounds to kind of reflect what's out there in the real world. And we always try and take this um, really human-centered design approach to, you know, what's the reason, why are we making this thing? 
who's going to be inter- interacting with it, like what things are going to be interacting with it. Like, and that's not just the end user as well. It's like everyone along, you know, it's classic, it's design 101. Um, you know, what, what, what are the use cases? Who's going to be interacting with it? Who's going to be using it? And I think it's, it's that that makes the ultimate product because once you've decided, once you've considered every, every touch point um, by everyone along that sort of use case, um, you're really starting to create the perfect product. And that's, that's in, that should start to generate good design. The UK, especially London and, and Savile Row with Geese and Hawks, are known to making some of the most incredible bespoke suits, and they have the perfect fit. You have Jaguar Land Rover, which makes some great cars there. And it was really cool. I was doing research with that guys. You worked on the bespoke team. You did the, the Defender Bond edition. You did the Range Rover Sport SVR. So you understood for a high-demanding client of how to make the perfect vehicle. How does one go about designing and engineering the perfect vehicle when you have a customer that's used to getting bespoke suits on Savile Row, um, not having to wait for anything? How do you manage all of that? And so when you go to that, here you are, ma'am, here you are, sir, here's your product, and they go, Deep, thank you, you did it. <laughs> it's really hard. It's really hard because when, when, you, so when you're at a company like Jaguar Land Rover, which is, um, although it's not like a, a huge manufacturer in, in sort of output or numbers when you compare it to the likes of sort of, you know, BMW, VW, all that sort of thing. It's still, a, it's, 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 a, it's, um, it's a one company, two great brands. It's a luxury brand. And I think the, from the outside looking in, it would be really easy to bespoke products. But when that system, when the system that's been created, whereby there's lots of expenditure in, um, you know, CapEx um, to sort of set up the, the manufacturing lines, there's a lot of commonality across like all the different types of products um, in terms of the part share. Um, when you want, when, when someone sort of comes and sort of says, I want to change this part or I want to do that thing, you're having to track back all the way through that really heavy system to say, okay, what is it going to take to change that thing? And suddenly you're chasing your way through, you know, seven different processes. You're not, you, you're having a knock on effect to seven other different parts around that you have having an effect on seven different groups and then seven different teams and, and, and the cycle goes on. So it's a real big system that you have to really contend with and, and just on changing like one part or one, one color. Um, but it really helps you to understand, you know, it gives you that holistic view of, of what it takes to make that one product. And I think what it takes to get that one vehicle on the road. So um, definitely a challenge, but it gives you an appreciation for full on like holistic I suppose, like how to deliver that, that, that whole program. I'm a longtime JLR owner and I absolutely love them. And so, you know, your, your old team at JLR makes some incredible vehicles that are highly reliable and that are safe and they're really well engineered and I love them. And now you're at Arrival. So you go from JLR to Arrival. What, what was that like? And what was the inspiration of why, why did you want to join Arrival? I mean, the vehicles look cool, but what was the, what was that journey like? Yeah, it's a really tough one. And I think um, I'd spent, uh, by that point, just over five years, five, six years at, at Jaguar Land Rover. Um, and I was really looking for something that was a little bit more nimble um, and something that was a little bit more free-flowing. Um, being a part of a company that um, was, you know, 40,000 people strong. Um, again, I, I suppose just to sort of like talk about the processes involved in trying to get a model signed off or trying to have that influence where you could change a part or suggest a new idea. Um, it was really difficult to push that through. And I think I was perhaps 
I, I needed an environment where that was encouraged more than it was sort of like, okay, we'll schedule that sort of thing in. Um, so I actually spent a fair bit of time traveling around the world. I went to Hong Kong for a little bit. Um, I went to the West Coast um, in, in America for a little bit as well in looking for a job. Um, and I came back with nothing in my hands. <laughs> so there was a, a whole lot of opportunity, but I couldn't really figure out where I wanted to go. And I just got a call out of the blue, uh, out of the blue from a mutual contact who'd left Jaguar Land Rover to join this company, who at the time was called um, Charge. It's now subsequently called Arrival. And it was 50 people sat in one room sort of trying to, you know, engineer commercial vehicles and really question how to break down or decentralize, you know, the automotive world. Like, how do you challenge getting to market quicker? Um, how do you challenge the sort of service and maintenance? How do you um, create an infrastructure to service these vehicles? How do you treat a city like a customer? And I think all these different types of questions well, was all the, all the really interesting stuff behind the scenes and, and the products are just the start of it. So there was no way I could sort of, walk, I, was, I kind of looked around, I was just like, right, okay, this is, this is cool. And there was like a, a workshop where people were working on stuff and playing around with things. And it was just genuine research and development. And there was no way I could sort of walk back into JLR without sort of thinking like, I've got to hand in my notice today. So yeah, it's, it's super exciting at the time. Um, but super difficult, you know, it, I, I think I was employee number 51 and I've seen, I've been here with the company for about four years and it's just as hard as day number one, but for very different reasons. Um, there's a lot of things that we're trying to do, but we're doing it for the right reason. And I think we've just got to over 1600 people now, um, all working on very valid things and lots of different things behind behind the scenes that, you know, we're super excited to start to roll out over the next 12 months. It sounds like, and I'll say this in my opinion, it sounds like you went from JLR to Arrival and it was a breath of fresh air. You've said, okay, this is an innovative entrepreneurial company. We're going to start from scratch. We're going to build a vehicle from scratch. We're going to figure out the whole ecosystem of it from scratch, and we're going to do this. And one of the things I love to dive into that in that, when you're developing the vans from scratch, were you looking to eliminate some of the unnecessary parts and increase efficiency? So your, your public customer, UPS, for example, there's efficiencies incorporated into those vehicles when you're looking at it from completely different than having a traditional plant and an assembly line and of how you develop it. Were you looking to develop efficiencies? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that you kind of get afforded when, when, you, when you start from, when you start to create vehicles, um, that are designed to be electric vehicles from the ground up. It affords you to explore some of those efficiencies. So, you know, why do we need to carve out this space where there would normally be an internal combustion engine? Or how can we start to um, design components that all could, you know, all the components and all the life of the vehicle would live in the platform level so that your what you put on top of the vehicle or the platform becomes different types of vehicles. So you get to explore the way that vehicles are designed, um, the way they're sort of laid out. And when you start to define certain rules about how you want to scale the company and who you want to treat as a customer. So for example, my, when you take into consideration micro factories, that, that imposes a certain set of rules about how you might want to assemble a vehicle and then, you know, which has a knock on effect onto how you design the vehicle. So there are certain efficiencies um, that we sort of explored 
to enable what we're trying to create. And then there are also other efficiencies that are inherent with designing for electric vehicles from the ground up as well. Can those vehicles hold the same amount of cargo as a traditional either natural gas powered vehicle or an internal combustion vehicle? Yeah, so not only are we, we sort of price competitive on you know, the purchase price um, when you compare it to inter- internal combustion engines, we also look at the, the sort of the usability as well. Because if, if um, because we're so focused on sort of um, commercial vehicles at the moment and it's, it's, a much, it's a much more known entity. And as a, as a fleet, um, fleet customer, you're sort of going in with the mindset of, well, this product has got to operate to the same sort of level as, as what I've got today. Otherwise, my efficiency drops or, you know, or it's got to be better. Um, so we always look at, you know, what kind of what competitors exist today? What do our fleet customers use today? And how can we um, um, meet that or how can we improve on that from a, a vehicle performance perspective as well? So, yeah, our, our vans, are, when you look at sort of equivalent competitors, they, they carry roughly 25% more cargo volume, um, roughly, I think, in the same order of magnitude as, as payload as well, depending on the configuration or the variant of the vehicle. Um, and then in terms of um, other performance, you know, vehicle characteristics as well, we try to meet or exceed um, what exists today as well, mainly because we've been able to question, you know, how we, how we lay out a vehicle, given that it's an, uh, it's an electric vehicle. Did UPS have certain requirements when you're going through your partnership? The van, the vans had to be built to a certain requirement for UPS. Yeah. So the interesting thing about UPS is they they've been with us from the start of this journey, um, and that's afforded them, I suppose, the, the opportunity to really be involved in sort of the design process, and it's really helped us really understand, you know, how do you, how does a fleet customer like UPS or how does a fleet operator like UPS um, use their vehicles? Um, where do those vehicles get used? What kind of routes do they go on? So I think it's been a real, really big two-way learning. Um, they certainly came in with some requirements, and that's not to say we've designed solely to those requirements. It's something that we've taken into consideration in in our sort of design cycle. So UPS will will come in with a certain, let's say, um, in the cargo area, a certain shelving system or a certain configuration on on the way their doors are set up, whether they're sliding or they're you know. Uh, pin hinge traditional doors and they, these are things that we've sort of been able to build in on a on a very modular basis so for example we can then offer that to other customers um, as, as well as UPS but in different configurations um, which is great for us because it allows us the flexibility to you know open up um, loads of different configurations without having to necessarily think about the exact number of configurations we have to design for. That's awesome. I'm going to put my uh, 10-year-old hat on and say it sounds like an awesome Lego set where you can modify and change everything. It's it's brilliant. Looking at the, the design of the vehicles and looking at the traditional UPS vans, it seems like it's easier to get cargo in and out of the arrival vans versus the traditional UPS vans. Is that the, is that the right assumption from looking at the graphics? Yeah, and I think that's, again, that's the great thing about being able to design a vehicle from the ground up is when you... We're, Arrival is it, it's a super vertically integrated company, and I think we have we've set up a, a system whereby we use grid-based components. So we have like predefined spaces for certain you know battery modules or motors and gearboxes, and I think when you can start to lay out this grid-like system and place these components in there in the platform, you can start to drastically shape or change the way a vehicle is sort of set up. So you're not having to account for a huge drive line because you're marrying it up to a huge gearbox because you're married that to a huge engine. You're really pushing 
all, all these components are far smaller and far more, uh, much more compact and pushed down into the platform. So then that opens up the ability to really lower the floor, it opens up the ability to maximize on cargo space, it opens up the ability to put the driver in a, a much more unique position in terms of giving them better visibility when they're sort of um, maneuvering the vehicle or, or driving the vehicle. Um, and even to the point where you can start to set up much more ergonomically sort of um, sympathetic steps so you can get in and out of the vehicle, your ingress and egress into the um, either the seat or into the back of the vehicle and the side of the vehicle is, is, is drastically improved. It's an overall better experience. You, it's better for the company. It's better for the driver. It just seems like it's the perfect fit for delivering goods. And one of the things I'm, I'm dying to know, and I got to ask you, how do you determine where the electric vehicle charging plug goes? <laughs> oh, it's contentious. <laughs> it's it's a debate that everyone it's it's a debate that everyone has. Um, but I think yeah. So I suppose going back to the way arrival designs vehicles or or, or just product products and, and services in general is that like we we take a huge range of of um, like backgrounds and experiences, and I think certainly with our industrial design team and our service designers in in the experience teams. When we come together and we draw out these scenarios and we include customers um, like UPS, for example, um, we really draw out and map out, okay, where are these things going to be used? Who are the like, types of people and the types of things that are going to interact with this vehicle? And then we let that sort of environment or that use case or multiple use cases define what is the best option for you know, a, a charge point, something like a charge point. And I think it's that at that point, you know, engineering need to sort of put their hand up and just go, um, <laughs> can't quite package that or like, oh, maybe this is not the best option. But we, you know, we, we definitely try and push the boundaries on our side as well to see, what, you know, how, we, how can we enable that, like the prime location and then like how close can we actually get to that in, in reality? That's fantastic. You've got a great business here. And unlike a lot of the peers that are developing electric vehicles today, Arrival is solely focused on the B2B business with the vans and the buses. Absolutely brilliant because B2B, there's a path to profitability. There's a, a path to massive revenue and a path to scale from here to the moon. Why and what did you and the team at Arrival see in the B2B space while, let's call your competitors were focused on the B2C space? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. I think it's when we started this journey, five six years ago um in 2015 or the business started the, the journey it it was it was immediately apparent apparent that it's like a really underserved um uh, part of the market so we you know we're seeing a lot of noise from um tesla like really get like that's when you know share prices started shooting up and tech not like people started to see vehicles as devices at, at that point um you know they'd done an amazing job in sort of um creating that mass mass adoption of electric vehicles. And I think the commercial side, there wasn't so much sort of happening on that side. And I think what we were able to do is really spot that opportunity on that and, and sort of look at these, look at the commercial side and say, well, hang on a minute. When you look at a B2B sort of model, there are some really predefined use cases there that you can start to design around. So it's not like me or you, when we go and buy a car, like our routes can vary. So like on the, you know, from one day to the next, you could be driving 100 miles, 200 miles, 300 miles, whatever it is, it's just so, so much, like the, the bandwidth is just so much to design for. Whereas on a fleet level or a B2B level, they're kind of like, yep, we are this company and we deliver on this route, you know, nine times out of 10. And the one time out of 10, it might go 10% above that. So the use cases are really defined. Um, 
and like you said, it, there's a real, real route to, to profitability as well. With with a lot of um, uh, cities sort of bringing in legislation, which is forcing you know fleets or or, or creating sort of mun- their their municipalities sort of creating these areas where um, or legislation which is driving a lot of innovation or, or um, adoption of electric vehicles on on a fleet level. The, the total addressable market is becoming too big to ignore. Um, so we've really sort of um, got a step ahead in, in thinking about this sort of five or six years ago. I'm happy you talked about the cities because you're right. The cities are, are passing legislation on the city level, sometimes the county level, and you know your routes. The routes for your customers are going to operate, as you said, nine out of ten times. They're going to go the same route. Sometimes they might even do it every day. So you know where to put the charging infrastructure. Mm-hmm. They understand it could be a place where maybe they gather for lunch. They could charge the vehicles while they have lunch. So it's extremely well, well thought out. And I'm really happy to uh, when I read a press release that Arrival's coming to America. Not not the Eddie Murphy movie, which was awesome, but Arrival is coming uh, <laughs> to America. So you're opening the micro factory in South Carolina. Super cool, super awesome. What vehicles will be built at that factory? The long term, yeah, good question. The long term vision is that any vehicle could be could be built from that factory, um, and that's that's the beauty of a, of a micro factory. So um, there's some great technology and. That comes with a micro factory, whereby we're we're adopting a cell-based manufacturing method, um, and that comes with a robotic system where it's not predefined and it's not it doesn't know a finite number of pre, uh, processes. It can instantly learn how to adopt a new process or how to interface or interact with different um, a number of different parts, and and continue to learn to do that through its vision systems and its um, sensory systems. So once we've been able to prove something out in um, in our, uh, let's say, let's call it a development centre in, in Banbury, just north of London here in the UK, the whole system, in theory, should have just learnt it. So you can then deploy that or roll that out um, across the world. So it gets uploaded, um, in theory, and then the system just knows how to do that thing. So we're on that sort of journey to, to really realising that and rolling that out, and we're sort of testing that at the moment. But the long-term vision is that any micro factory can build any type of vehicle we go on to build, because of the way that we're designing them and the rules that we're using um, to design these vehicles. However, initially, um, I suppose the the first port of call is to you know really address what we've been talking about to the world, which is our bus and our, our van products. And we're looking to trial, um, you might have seen in the news recently that we're looking to uh, create a trial um, run of it. We're creating a trial of our buses um, with a company called First Group here in the UK this year. Um, we're and then we're taking that to uh, sort of uh, we're extending that to produ- uh, we're trying to get to a start of production by the end of this year, um, early next year, and then we're also looking to um, take our vans to a start of production by um, 2020, uh, 2022 as well. Transit's a great company, fascinating, but you hit on something I want to dive into. What is the robotics of there where something is developed in the UK and then it's essentially pushed to America? Could you explain that? Because I think you're onto something really spectacular there. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's really uh, difficult to sort of explain. So if you think about like a, a more traditional sort of OEM setup where you have a line-built assembly system um, and you have each, each, say, the vehicle sort of moves to a station each time and it has a lo- another little bit added on. That's a really traditional way of doing it because it's very sort of like it just gets a piece added and a robot at each station just has to do like one action or like one thing. 
we, we've decided to like sort of flip that on its head and, and sort of try and have the vehicle as much as possible, uh, as, as stationary as much as possible so that it just gets built in one cell. So if you imagine on a really simplistic level, we feed in an airfix kit of parts or going back to your Lego model, like your Lego analogy, we feed in a Lego kit of parts. The system looks at those parts and goes like, oh, right, I'm making this thing today because it can like see it and it can touch it and you feel it. In real time, you can you can start to realize like, in real time, you can imagine, you know, a city. If we're serving a city as a customer, and it's saying, through whatever mechanism, I need five thousand of vehicle X or ten thousand of vehicle Y, but in two months' time, I need that balance to completely switch. You can start to do that in real time. Like it's crazy because like, that cell will be able to just look at a kit of parts and say, I'm making this thing today. Game changer. You're you're engineering the future today. Absolutely game changing. This can go on to completely revolutionize the way that we build vehicles across the world. Which is yeah, which is why you know the product is just the start of it. And I think there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes that you know certainly in the long term vision we're we're, we're we're a long way away from it, but we're definitely stepping stones to to getting there. Um, it, it will definitely start to change the way we serve cities, how we start to. Do, you know, what types of vehicles we create as well. So when you decentralize something like the automotive world, you're not trying to bring everything from all over the world to one point to then send it back out again. You're starting to create, you're starting to leverage local talent. You're starting to leverage a local supply base, local needs to create what that, what that little micro region needs. And most importantly, you're creating lots and lots of local high paying jobs. Yep. That's, that's, that's another one as well, for sure. We've kind of danced around a micro factory if the terms come out a few times on this podcast, but what is a micro factory? How would you describe a micro factory? <laughs> it's great. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so a micro, a micro factory in principle could take many forms. Um, it, but on a very simplistic level, it's roughly the same size as two American football pitches. Um, so about 100,000 square feet, if I've got my math right. And essentially, it's, um, it's an assembly factory, which um, is based on a cell-based system where you have cells with a predefined number of robots, normally four, um, to perform many different types of operation to bring together the assembly of a product. Um, and for the foreseeable future, those will be sort of mobility products. And does this strategy, the micro factory strategy tie into from the technology of the designs coming to the UK of these factories being designed to incorporate it or, or in Legos is, is when we're going back to being kids here, but everybody wanted to fight to get the green, the green pieces so you can build bigger houses or build bigger things. And are those green blocks basically the factories and you just build whatever you want on top of it? Yeah, it, it's it's essentially that, and I think you know, just your Lego analogy is a great one because you can imagine, like in central R and D, we've created the Lego blocks that, you know, we we feel are the fundamentals um, to create. A, let's let's call it a complete product. You can then start to imagine, like when you want to set up a micro factory to serve a mega city somewhere across the world, we could pick anywhere. We, we, can, we can deploy a team really quickly there. We can deploy a micro factory much quicker, you know, in, in the space of six months compared to a number of years when you, when you sort of compare it to a traditional um, factory setup or a gigafactory and sort of start to really serve 
almost instantaneously that market because we can really understand what does that city need and we can look at our Lego blocks at home and say, oh, do you know what? We could probably use 75% of our Lego blocks, but there are the, the 25% that are left, we might have to create unique Lego blocks. So then you start, can start to design that in market specifically for that region. And you feed that back to the central system to say, hey, we've created these new blocks. There's, there's just a library of blocks. So your blocks start to grow. And you can really quickly see how, how much quicker a company can scale on that level compared to trying to create a more centralized model. So you can start to deploy microfactories a lot quicker. You can understand regions a lot quicker. Um, you can understand needs a lot quicker, which means you can start designing a lot quicker and just getting products out a lot quicker. You're right about that. Decentralization is the future. We're, we're seeing it in finance. We're seeing it in, in multiple industries. Are you able to do this because of the modular skateboard platform that Arrivals developed? So going back to Legos again, then you can just put the different Lego blocks or build the house on there or build the vehicle on top of it? Yeah, and you know what? I think we've seen um, de definitely over the, the past few years, platform, like the word platform um, is or, or skateboard platform is has been adopted quite widely now in the industry. And we've definitely got our own um, uh, sort of methodology for getting to a platform, uh, sort of a skateboard platform. And essentially, the, the reason for that is because it does open up those um, sort of opportunities to start to put, you know, different types of products on top of that platform. So once you've designed that, you've gone through the pain of designing the Lego blocks to create your skateboard platform. It's a much quicker process to then say, OK, if we put that, you know, that, that specific platform in, this country or that region or for that for that opportunity you've almost cut out all of that development time because you've, you've kind of done it already um brilliant and then so you you got the really great engineering for the hardware we, we got our lego blocks are being deployed for for all sorts of really cool awesome things how about the software is the software designing being in-house is arrival fully integrated yeah we uh you know we, we we try to look at the really high value sort of parts of of I suppose the value chain of, of like delivering a product and we, we tackle the most difficult ones. So yeah, we, we design everything from a, a sort of a software and a hardware perspective, definitely on a, a sort of an EV level. Um, and the, the, the software is, is something that's the key to, to sort of enabling what we're calling these devices on wheels. Um, we're sort of seeing it, you know, the closest thing we can sort of say is um, you look at Tesla over the air up, um, updates um the fact that you can go into your service manual and reconfigure things on your on just one screen, like it just completely changes the product experience. Um, and we're definitely looking to do um, sim very similar sort of things to enhance that kind of experience and the, the usability of the product. But then when you look at like, you know, when you're serving um, definitely the commercial sector, there are all sorts of optimizations that still need to be done on, on you know, managing fleets, really optimizing routes, optimizing usage. And these are the things that we're really trying to focus on to try and help um, partners like UPS, you know, help them understand, not to say that we, we completely know how to do this because they've obviously been in the game for numerous decades. Um, uh, we, we, we obviously don't know logistics as well as they do, but what we can bring to that is just enhanced like analytics, like where are their vehicles even stored what are their vehicles doing on a daily basis are they actually using the full extent of the the range that the vehicle has um using uh, with that kind of analytics and that insight you can then start to say well actually ups we might be able to reduce how many batteries you have to buy and then you can start to see how that benefits the whole system it's brilliant 
Because you're looking at this from the outside, because I think that's one of the great things about entrepreneurs and companies such as Rather Looking at this. You're, you're not in the day-to-day of, let's call it Acme Company, living and breathing it, being there for 20 years. You're saying, well, here's a really great company, but we can help optimize it with a better product. And that's completely game-changing for the industry, and you're 100% right about fleet optimization. Across the whole B2B, that's something that we're going to have to figure out in order to scale this, and that's something, hopefully, with your help that we'll be able to get there. As you're looking at all this, you're designing what I'll call the absolutely perfect fleet vehicle for commercial customers. When will these vehicles start showing up in fleets? Oh, great question. Yeah. So um, on the there's there's definitely two sort of halo programs that we we've started talking about to the world right now. Um, the first one is the bus program. That's kind of going into a trial, um, a bit of a trial operation with a company called First Group here in the UK this year. Um, and then we're looking to take um, the van to production in 2022. Um, so next year initially in the UK, um, and then eventually looking at the US as well. So we'll start seeing um, seeing the van, you know, definitely the bus and van products this year and next year. Awesome. So the, the buses are being shipped, the vans are being shipped, the company's growing. As the company grows, how are you going about looking for, for new, really great talent to join Arrival? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question. I think you know, Arrival, we're a company that's just gone into execution mode. So we've been in this sort of like R&D phase for, for quite a while now. And we've we've definitely got a, a really strong skill set suited to sort of R&D, product development, getting it up to that stage of production engineering. Um, now we're, we're looking to, to, to find people to sort of help us execute on, on some of these ideas and, um, and not just ideas, these concepts and, and, and some of this production engineering as well. Um, there is a lot of um, you know a lot of usual platforms. There's a lot of um, uh, headhunting that's being done. There's a lot of looking on LinkedIn. Um, people can go to our website and sort of I think they see on the on the bottom right hand corner they can click join now. Um, people can reach out to Rival. I think what sort of sets us apart a little bit is that we focus very heavily on culture, and um, a lot of people will sort of say that's kind of our secret sauce. Um, and what I mean by that is, it's, it's really hard to put a finger on or, or trying to define exactly what that is. But I think my own interpreta- interpretation is just have a willingness and just be curious enough to try and explore things and find a way of making it happen. Um, and don't have an ego. Like, don't feel like your way is the best way. Everyone has a valid opinion. It doesn't matter what level you are in the company, where you are. I think what's great is Dennis kind of walks around and sort of like picks up things from a desk and sort of says, oh, what's this thing? And then you kind of, you're suddenly, you're a junior engineer having a discussion with the CEO of the company because you're generally interested in, in that sort of thing. And I think when, when you understand that, you can then start to just reach out to people. If you know someone in Arrival, if you know anyone who has anything to do with arrival you can just get through on that avenue and start talking to someone and they'll be more than happy to help out so all the usual channels you know, there's multiple channels to apply for jobs um look out on our website apply on our website and then just pe- talk to people who, who who already know us it's awesome that you're hiring and i love the focus on culture and curiosity because you never know what you're going to uncover when somebody starts with curiosity and next thing you know they made a design change to the vehicle or something dramatically happened that changed the course of the company and then they have a really great career with the rival deep we've covered a ton of awesome ground on this podcast we've touched on your personal journey for that individual who's thinking about a career in the mobility industry 
what advice would you have for them? Because you've done some really great things from sports to building really cool bespoke vehicles to JLR to now engineering the future at Arava. What advice would you share? Oh, um, that's a really tough question. I guess one, one thing I would say is looking back at my own career, don't, don't underestimate the value that millimeter engineering can give you. Um, and what I mean by that is don't be impatient do the jobs where you really have to get into the nitty gritty and understand what a clevis joint is, understand what it takes to define an attribute, understand what it takes to design a part, like even if it's a sheet metal part, understand tolerances, really work on becoming a great engineer um, or a great you know, creative, like whatever the respective um, sort of terminology is. Don't be afraid of exploring that and then moving on. And once you feel like you've really mastered something, move on and move on. And then you can start to like sort of, I think, climb up and start to branch outside of that. Because once you've got like that core fundamental knowledge, it really does ground you when you get to, I don't know, like direct level or whatever, or, or chief of product level in, in sort of making some of the decisions that you need to make. So yeah, don't be impatient um, and don't underestimate the value of millimeter engineering or knowledge. No, this is deep. This has been an, an incredible conversation. You're, you're doing really great things at Arrival, and you're you're engineering the future. And we can't thank you enough for for coming on the SAE podcast because tomorrow is today, and Arrival's engineering the future today. And so, deep, thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing your wonderful journey and story with us. Because I learned a lot, and it's been awesomely interesting. Oh, no problem. Thanks so much for having me, Grayson. It's been it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to SAE Tomorrow Today. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please kindly rate, review, and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next. Tune in next week to hear from Jorgon Peterson, President and CEO, and Amanda Sigro, Principal Research Scientist at ReSquared Robotics, as they discuss how robotics can improve safety and efficiency across industries. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.